I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1, but I'll not be referring to the text for a few minutes, but you can have it ready when, when I get to it. One recent book calls the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity. His ministry is to not put himself forward, but to put forward Jesus Christ and God the Father. So being filled with the Spirit then would mean being filled with love for Christ and the love of God in Christ. When Jesus promised in John 16:14 the coming of the Spirit, he said, "He will glorify me." He does not glorify himself. The Spirit is shy. He is self-effacing. When we look to the Spirit, the Spirit steps behind Jesus and pushes him out, hides himself behind Jesus Christ. Therefore, in seeking to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have to go about it indirectly. We must seek the fullness of the Spirit by seeking the wonder of Christ. If we look away from Jesus and focus on the Holy Spirit, I think we will sink into a mire of subjective emotion with very little objective content. The Spirit does not reveal Himself. The Spirit reveals Christ. And therefore, the fullness of the Spirit is the fullness that we feel as we gaze upon Christ. And the power of the Spirit is the power we feel in the presence of Christ. And the joy of the Spirit is the joy that flows to us when we believe the promises of Christ. Many of us know what it's like to crouch down on the floor of our room and cry out for power and for joy and the lifting of oppression in the Holy Spirit, oh Holy Spirit, come and nothing happens. And the next day, as we meditate soberly upon the glory of Jesus Christ in His Word, we are swept into the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does not want our attention. He wants Jesus to have it. Devote yourselves to seeing and feeling the grandeur of Christ and you will be so in tune with the Spirit that He will empower you to that end. If you want to know how to put yourself in the stream of the Spirit so that you can feel borne along by Him, the answer is look at Christ and meditate on His glory because the Spirit exists to magnify Christ. Christian spiritual experience is not a vague religious emotion. It is an emotion with objective content. And that content is Christ. 
The shy member of the Trinity does a mighty, mighty work. But he never puts himself in the limelight. He is the limelight that shines on Christ and God the Father. So if you want to be in the Spirit, you get into the light, the strobe, and look at what he's aiming at. He throws Christ into sharp relief. Therefore, when the time was fully come for God to send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a man, a God man, it fell to the shy member of the Trinity to do the service for Christ of begetting him in a virgin. Through him, the Father caused the Son to be conceived in Mary, the Virgin. And so from the very beginning of the Incarnation, the Holy Spirit has been assigned the task of doing whatever needs to be done to see to it that Christ gets put forward for our worship and admiration, including the Virgin birth. In order now to appreciate the Virgin birth, in its scripture context, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Luke 1, 26 to 37, a verse at a time. And predictably, what we will find here is the glory of Jesus Christ. And the shy member of the Trinity can't deny his essential work in the process, so he will be there, but oh so delicately, and unobtrusively put forward. Jesus shines in this passage, but oh, how important the work of the Holy Spirit is. Let's take it a verse at a time. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. The sixth month refers to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's the kinswoman of Mary who had been barren and now is bearing John the Baptist. Gabriel is mentioned in Scripture in two other places only. Daniel, he comes forward as the interpreter of Daniel's vision. And here in this chapter, in verse 19, he comes forward as the announcer of the birth of John the Baptist. What's really significant, however, in this one verse, I think is God's decision to announce to Mary ahead of time what's about to happen. This is a motif or a pattern in Scripture that before God does a mighty deed, He regularly sends somebody with a word about what the deed is going to mean and what its implications are going to be for God's people. Events by themselves are very ambiguous, aren't they? As you look around in the world, God is not one who likes a lot of ambiguity in his revelation. And therefore, he grants his word with his work so that there's no misunderstanding on Mary's part. What in the world is happening here? Now, there are two lessons in passing. I want us to draw out of that one. 
Beware of reading extraordinary meaning into the circumstances of your life when there is no clear word from God to tell you what it's all about. There are far too many people who have a kind of mystical approach to their lives and they treat their lives as kind of a living Ouija board and they're always trying to figure out what the movements of persons mean. What did it mean that I got that phone call last night? What did it mean that I woke up early this morning? What does it mean that the people at work looked at me like that? What does everything mean? And you're always trying to interpret your life without a word from God from Scripture. And I simply counsel you, forget it. Don't do that. Let the Scripture inform your life and then where the Scripture bears on the events of your life, then you can interpret them according to God's intentions. Otherwise, you are going to get yourself into a mass of ambiguity and uncertainty. The second meaning is this, or the second lesson. I don't think we should ever settle for silent witness at our work. Or neighborhood. I do want to affirm that the way we work and the way we live is utterly crucial for giving credibility to our witness. But there are far too many people who, unlike God, don't accompany their work with a word. And if God's work needs a word of explanation, how much more our ambiguous work? And therefore, if it's God's characteristic way of revealing things, to do a mighty work and precede it and follow it and often accompany it with loud and clear and unambiguous words by his apostles and prophets, then we ought not to be so presumptuous as to think that our lives are going to communicate clearly either. Verse 27. Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Two crucial facts. One, Mary was a virgin. Two, Joseph was of the house of David. The virginity of Mary is important for two reasons. One, it means that she was sexually pure. She had not slept with her fiancé, nor any other man. That would have been fornication. Fornication is an abomination to God, no matter what the fast track in Minneapolis says, or the people that you work with, or the students who think it is stupid to think in terms of virginity until marriage. Take your cues, young people, from God and let the world go the way they will. Don't follow them to destruction. Of course, every woman in Jesus' lineage wasn't pure. Bathsheba, mother of Solomon, was an adulteress. Tamar, also in the line of Jesus, seduced her father-in-law. The good news, of course, is that, and many of you have discovered it, God can forgive that junk in your life. He can clean you up 
marriage can happen and be happy. But let's not play down the fact that when God wanted a mother for the Son of God, he chose a virgin. Virginity before marriage is important because the recipient of God's best gift ought to be pure, whether it's the Son of God or marriage. Mary's virginity is important for a second reason. It means she wasn't pregnant. God aimed to make known that the conception of Jesus in the womb of a woman was owing to no man. His aim was to make clear that this child had no father but God. Therefore, he chose a virgin. But it's still important that Joseph be of the house of David because legally in the Jewish culture that put Jesus square in the line of David and made him the fulfillment of all the promises given to the son of David which we're going to read about in a few moments. Verse 28. And Gabriel came to her and said, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The word favored one there occurs one other time in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, where it refers to a bestowal of grace upon unworthy people. It's a word of grace. Therefore, what Gabriel is saying is that, first of all, Mary should understand this. Mary, you're about to be blessed above all women that have ever lived. And it is pure grace. Don't you dare boast. There are many other virgins in Nazareth. I could have prepared any of them for this task, Mary. This is grace. Parents are very prone to boast in their children. Very prone to be proud. That first word spoken, well, earlier than most kids spoke. We must be doing something right. It is an insidious temptation. I said to the first service, and I hope you'll take it rightly because I won't condemn you if you disagree with me, I will never say that I am proud of my sons. My dad says that about me. I don't use the word pride like that. Pride to me is a bad word, and I keep it for bad things. I love my sons. I delight in my sons. I rejoice in my sons. My sons give me pleasure. I die for my sons. I am not proud of my sons. Because I didn't have anything to do with their coming into being. And anything I do right in my life with those boys is pure grace in my life. The word pride sticks in my craw. I can't use it. I realize with the variety of sons that I have that if they make it to glory, it's going to be grace. And Gabriel knew that the woman who would bear the Son of God would have more temptation than any mother in this room to be proud. And so his first word is, O graced woman, God is about to show you grace. Don't ever construe it as merit, Mary. It is grace. 
verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. I would wager that you have discovered with Mary and and with me that grace, when it comes, does not always have a welcome face. Grace does not always come packaged in attractive colors. Grace can perplex. Grace can frighten. The grace of healing can have the face of a hypodermic needle or a surgeon's knife. The grace of of patience can have the face of pain. The grace of humility can have the face of defeat. Grace does not always come with an attractive face. And Gabriel scared Mary full of grace. But look how she responded. And let's learn from Mary here. In all humility, she didn't lash out at God for frightening form of grace. It says that she considered in her mind. Oh, how we Christians need to consider in our minds when strange forms of grace come into our lives. We need to stop before we get angry at God and consider Might this not be a a strange form of grace? You know, it always is for Christians. If you believe Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. It's all grace. We are so prone to doubt God and get angry at Him, unlike Mary. God will make it plain if we wait. Look what He did in verse 30. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. He reasserts the word grace. That's the word favor there. It's the same word that's translated grace in other parts of the New Testament. It's grace, Mary. Let the assurance that my form is all grace take away your fear. And here's the grace that I bring. And he quotes this marvelous prediction. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the heart of the passage. This is where the Holy Spirit comes into his own as he inspires Gabriel and Luke to write this. The Holy Spirit's in his element here. Christ is great. And he wants us to just look at this passage and let the greatness of Christ come and flow through us because that will be the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at these five things. First, his name will be called Jesus. In Hebrew, Joshua. Deliverer, Savior. I just love Gabriel here. He he loved grace so much. The first thing he says to Mary is uh, you're graced, Mary. And the first thing he says about Jesus before he tells us he's powerful, he's dignified, he's eternal, is how's he going to use all that power, all that dignity, and all that eternity? He's going to use it as a Yeshua, as a Savior, as a Jesus. The first thing he does is identify him as 
Jesus, Mary, this mighty son that you are about to bear will be your savior. So if it scares you that it looks like war on the horizon for the king and that a sword might pierce your own heart, he's your savior. Second, he will be great. Jesus is very, very great. A Christian who feels ashamed of Jesus Christ is like a candle feeling ashamed of the sun. Our Lord Jesus has been appointed by God to be the heir of all things. He bears the very stamp of his image and is his exact representation, the representation of the Father. He upholds the world, the universe, by the word of his power. Our Lord Jesus Christ is great beyond all imagining. Is there anything in your life that you get excited about, that you consider great, that you go out of your way to experience, to hear or see or experience? Jesus made it. He thought it up. And He is 10,000 times greater than whatever it is, yet without sin. Take all the greatest thinkers that have ever lived. Usually when we think about great men or great books, we think about thinkers because pumping iron doesn't move too many people. We think about thinkers. If you took all the greatest thinkers of the world, over all the centuries of the world and put them in this room and stood Jesus here, they would shut their mouths and listen to the wisdom of Jesus Christ. If you took all the generals in the world who've ever won victories and had master strategies and sat them in this room, they would shut their mouths and listen while Jesus Christ described His strategy. If you took all the musicians and artists of the world that people stand in awe of and write big columns about and admire their books and say all kinds of overstatements about, this one you must read, classic is born, and put them all here in this room with Jesus here and every musical instrument spread before him, they'd shut their mouths and put their hands in their pockets and listen while he gave the theory and performed on every instrument to their dismay. Jesus is very great. Words fail us to describe how great Jesus is. But here's the one word that blew me away yesterday as I wrote it. Because I was groping for sentences that would help you feel his greatness. And here's the sentence I came up with. There is nothing that Jesus cannot do a thousand times better than the person you admire most. No matter what the sphere of human endeavor. You admire politicians? You admire physically beautiful people? You admire intelligent people? You admire musicians? You admire sports? Jesus could put a football through a tire between here and my house every time for 10,000 years. Does sports move you? He is the best quarterback that ever lived. 
Anything that you admire, Jesus Christ can do 10,000 times better. Don't you admire Him? If we don't, we don't believe Him or the Bible. The third point, Gabriel says, is He will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, I know that disciples in Luke 6.35 are called sons of the Most High. And therefore, I'm aware that many scholars and people will say, all this means is, in the Hebraic context, is that he was an obedient believer and therefore a son of the Most High, like you and I are sons of the Most High. And I think that's dead wrong for two reasons. One reason is that in the context, Gabriel is listing things that distinguish and exalt Jesus Christ. He is king. He is great. He is eternal. And it would be utterly out of place and pointless for him to say, and he's like you and me. A believer. And the second reason I don't think that's what Gabriel means is because the one other place in the gospel where Jesus is called the Son of the Most High God is chapter 8, verse 28, where the demons see him coming and they say, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Do not torment me. Demons don't talk like that when I come. Jesus is the Son in the sense that He has all authority to take those demons, cast them into eternal torment, and keep them there forever, and they know it. He is not like you and me in His Sonship. When Gabriel said He is the Son of the Most High God, he meant that He is the image of God, the divine word, begotten from all eternity, not made. The fourth thing Gabriel said is, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Isn't it inevitable that if he's the Savior, if he's great, and if he is the Son of the Most High, that he must be king? He's going to reign. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob, but more than the house of Jacob, because Isaiah said in Isaiah 11:10. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as an ensign to the peoples. Him shall the nation seek, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Mary's son is going to be the king of the world. And all the nations will bow the knee before him. And finally, Gabriel says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You know what that means? It means that at 12.04, March 11, 1984, Jesus reigns. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He is as real a ruler over this congregation as President Reagan or Margaret Thatcher or Helmut Kohl is over their countries? If so, then you must agree with this, I think. If Gabriel spoke the truth, the issue around this planet, the political issue, the issue for every man, woman, and child is, will I bow the knee to the king? And obey the law of his kingdom. 
That's the issue in 1984. That's the political issue. Who is your king? And whose law do you follow wherever you live? Now Mary catches her breath. And she says, how can this be since I have no husband? She's ready to believe that the Messiah is to be born to her, but she can't fathom that she might have him as a virgin. So she asks, how? Her attitude is very humble. She doesn't say, oh, this is ridiculous. No way. She doesn't even do like Zacharias who said, give me some evidence. She simply says, I don't have a husband. How? We should learn from Mary how to respond to theological conundrums. God doesn't reject the question, how can this be? He rejects the question, I don't like it. And so here comes the, the patient answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Gabriel's answer to the question, how, is the Holy Spirit. That's how. Beyond that, revelation doesn't take us. How can a human child be a divine son? How can a child be born in a virgin? Answer, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and therefore the child will be called the Son of God. Now I want you to underline in your Bible the word therefore. That is the most important theological word in the verses if we've gotten the meaning from sonship from the verse above. Therefore has two meanings. It shows that the conception of Jesus in a virgin is owing to the mysterious work of the Spirit. And secondly, and more importantly yet, it shows that the divine sonship of Jesus depends upon the virgin birth. Now many people have said for centuries and will continue to say the virgin birth may or may not be true. But the doctrine of the incarnation doesn't matter, doesn't hang on it. It can be true whether that's true or not. Because God could have caused an incarnation through a normal fertilization process. People who talk like that are wiser than Scripture. Because Gabriel says very plainly, if you follow the reasoning, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, He will be called the Son of God. If He is Son, it is owing to His origin by the conception of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, or language ceases to mean anything. It's an unfathomable mystery that the fullness of deity should dwell in Jesus Christ bodily, but isn't it fitting that given that mystery, the gateway to it should be the virgin birth? To me, that is such a beautifully appropriate thing for God to do. And I have no reason to call God into question at this point. It should cause us, I think, to smile that the shy member of the Trinity has been given this delicate task of impregnating a virgin with the Son of God causing the virgin to conceive the one that he will spend the rest of eternity glorifying. 
Let's close with a brief look at verses 36 and 37. Gabriel gives the pregnancy of Elizabeth as evidence to Mary. She didn't even ask for evidence. And he says, now, remember Elizabeth was barren and now she's going to have a baby. So, look, with God, nothing is impossible, Mary. Believe me. Trust me. With God, nothing is impossible. The Holy Spirit may be shy, but He is omnipotent. What a tribute to Jesus Christ that an omnipotent member of the Trinity should exist to magnify Him throughout all eternity. So let's be like Mary. Let's conclude by being like Mary. Look at the last word in verse 38. Behold, all right, I'm your handmaid, Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Can you say that? Do you trust the Holy Spirit enough to say, all right, no holds barred. I drop my guard. You may have me. 100%. I'll go where you want me to go, when you want me to be there. I'll do what you want me to do when I get there. I am yours, 100%. I hope you, I hope you say that. You know why you don't have to worry about being abused or misused by the Spirit when you surrender into His arms like that? Because His goal, His reason for being, is to exalt Jesus Christ. And if the heartbeat of your life is the glory of Jesus Christ, then you know that in everything you do, He's going to be moving with power to help you, to strengthen you, to uphold you with His victorious right hand. So my admonition to you as we close is so live and so speak that men and women in Minneapolis and Mongolia and Morocco might see and know that He is a great Savior, that He is Son of the Most High God, and that His kingdom is never ending. That's the passion of the Holy Spirit And if we share His passion, we have His fullness.